In all truth, the third verse of that song is one that's always bothered me. I believe it. I believe there's a sad day coming. We all agree, or else we wouldn't have been speaking to one another and reminding one another of a sad day coming, but it bothers me. It bothered me when I was younger when I wasn't ready for the judgment day because I knew I needed to get ready. It bothers me still because there's times where I don't live where I should live and do the things that God has asked me to do, and at that moment I may not be ready. And it bothers me because I care about others and want them to come to a place where they are ready for the judgment day. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the final judgment and what it involves today. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 25, where we're going to read about 14, 15, 16 verses quickly, make some observations, and then we'll move on to our next text. Glad to be with you today. As Brother Brian pointed out, we have visitors with us, individuals who are relatively new to this part of the country or to this part of the state. We're thankful for you being here, and we're thankful for our members. And there's no better place for us to be on the Lord's Day than in a place where we can gather to study and to appreciate the teachings of his word and to sing these good songs. And I appreciate Brother David, and I appreciate his humility in saying, what else can you say? There are times where after a song service like we've had today, a preacher gets up and says, what am I going to do to add to this service? Well, hopefully we won't do any real adding, so to speak, but we will just complement everything we've talked about in song and in word together today. I want us to look at the final judgment, and we're going to acknowledge here very quickly that we all agree, based on biblical teaching, that there will be a day where each of us stand before God on the day of judgment. And I don't think that I have to do an awful lot of convincing to this group of people because we are Bible students and we are believers of his word. But there are those in the world that may not believe in the idea of a final judgment, standing before the judge and giving an answer for the things that we have done as we'll study together today. But what I'd like to do is to look at three glimpses by looking at three passages in the New Testament about judgment, and then just simply conclude with some applications that I think are important for each of us to understand. I want us to look first of all at Matthew chapter 25, and I want us to read 31 through 46. We're going to read it relatively quickly for the sake of time, but also given the fact that you are likely familiar with Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and just as I highlighted at the outset of our study, this is a passage that is in many ways uncomfortable to read because we don't like reading about Jesus saying, depart from me, you who are a worker of iniquity. But it's true that that's going to happen one day. And so let's read through this passage and do so maybe as if we've never read the passage before. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Verse 33, he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, 
You blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous are going to answer, and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it as to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the theme, it seems, of what we're covering today is uncomfortable verses and songs and uncomfortable passages to read. And that very last statement made by our Savior, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, is indeed troubling. I want to make a series of observations about Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 at the outset of our study together. Number one, I want you to notice that as we highlighted just a second or two ago, the definitive nature, the way Jesus speaks about the judgment. And it has been said that Jesus speaks about the judgment and Jesus speaks about hell and speaks about the reality of an eternal punishment, sometimes more often than he does about heaven and about the good things that are going to occur for those that are righteous. It's almost as if Jesus, the compassionate one that we've been studying in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is so compassionate that he's more concerned about a person's spiritual welfare and spiritual eternity than he is the physical nature of this life. And that's because he is. He's more concerned with the spiritual things than he is the physical things. Which is why, as Brother Brian talked to us about in John chapter 6 today, Jesus says, I am more concerned with spiritual food than I am physical food. Secondly, I want us to acknowledge, based on what we read in verse 32, that the judgment is universal and that it involves all people. There is not a person who is in this building today, nor a person who is listening in the parking lot or watching from home, or a person in the seven plus billion people on the face of this earth, not a single person will escape judgment. That is an incredible thought to ponder. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know what's going to transpire exactly on that day. But I know in verse 32 that it says that all nations will be gathered before him. And he's going to do some serious separating. The sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, those who are faithful from those who are unfaithful. The judgment is universal and it involves all people. 
You know, another thing that we can appreciate about the judgment is what we read in verse 32 and 33, where it says, He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then in verse 34, it goes on to say, The king, Jesus, is the authority. He is the judge. You know, these days when you go before an earthly judge, sometimes you can, in extraordinary circumstances, ask for a change of venue. Maybe the news has been so saturated with your case, or maybe the judge is familiar with your family, or maybe the judge knows something particular about your background that it would make him or her ineligible to be fair and impartial, the very things we want in a judge. But there will be no change of venue on the day of judgment. There will be no petition where we say to the judge, sir, I believe that you are not fitted for this particular job. That will not happen. There are not separate courtrooms or separate divisions in the judgment scene of Christ. He is the judge. And we, you, me, all of us, will stand before him. And when we stand before him, we need to appreciate that there will be definitive rewards and definitive punishments. We won't go back and read 34, 41, and 46 where you see that outline. But it's not uh, some sort of wishy-washy, well, you might be punished or you might be rewarded. No, you will be punished or you will be rewarded. And it will be eternal in nature. This is not so much a sermon about hell, but you cannot talk about this subject without talking about hell, it seems to me, because hell is real. And that's a sermon in and of itself that perhaps in the next few weeks I may be talking about. But there are definitive punishments for those who are wicked. When Jesus says in verse 41, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's so much just in that one verse that we could extrapolate. But suffice it to say that hell is prepared for the devil. It is a home for Satan. It is the abode of the wicked one, of the prince of the power of the air, of this world that goes about trying to destroy you and me. And it can be the virus. It it can be cancer. It can be financial difficulties. But nothing compares to hell when it comes to punishments that come in the way of evil. And that's what we are to be most concerned about. Jesus even went so far as to say, you remember, he says, don't be afraid of someone who can destroy you in this earth or rob you or harm you in some way we could also uh, talk about, but rather be very afraid and be very wary of the one who has the power, that is God, to destroy both body and soul in hell for eternity. That's what really matters. As Brother David pointed out in a sermon six, seven, eight months ago, there are things that are more serious and more dangerous than a virus and things more serious and more dangerous than cancer and things that are more serious and more dangerous than financial instability. You name it, we worry about a lot of things. And when I say we, I mean you and I mean me because I worry about it too. 
I worry about certain things that go on in the world and certain things that go on in our country and certain things that affect those that we care about and that we love. But hell matters more. It will always matter more because we're talking about an eternity separated from God. There are definitive punishments, but the great thing is there is a definitive reward where he says you are going to inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the gospel of John. And here in verse 34, he says, I'm preparing this for you from the foundation of the world. And before we think, well, that's just not fair, let us go to our fifth and final observation in this text, and that is rewards or punishments are directly tied to our actions on earth. You see, sometimes there is a miscarriage of justice in the United States, and certainly in the world, void of democratic principles that, and freedoms that we enjoy. Sometimes innocent people get punished. It's happened. And we all know that the guilty people sometimes go away free. Maybe there's a technicality in the case, and then the case gets thrown out, and the person who should have spent three years in prison now goes scot-free. That thing happens in this world. That will not happen with God, our righteous judge. It just won't happen. Those that deserve to go to heaven, and I use the word deserve lightly because by grace we are saved, Ephesians chapter 2, and those that go to hell certainly will be there because that's what the righteous judge decided. Speaking of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God says, I want you to walk a certain way. I want you to act a certain way. I want you to talk a certain way in order for you to experience heaven and to avoid hell. So this is the first glimpse of judgment or the first picture of judgment that I wanted us to explore for just a few moments. But I want us to look at a second glimpse, and that is one that we may not look at as frequently, and that's in the book of John, the gospel of John in the New Testament in chapter 5 particularly in verses 25 through 32. Notice what it says beginning in verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Don't marvel at this. Don't be surprised by this. Don't let this catch you off guard. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And they will come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, drop down two more verses. And in my Bible, there's a break between 30 and 31. And that may be the case in yours. But I want to pick up with two more verses. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Therefore, 
or they said, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This goes back to the Bible class that actually I taught a few weeks ago uh, when we were talking about John chapter 5. But I want us to make a couple of acknowledgments here. Number one, I want us to appreciate that phrase, the dead shall hear his voice in verse 25. There has been some suggestion that there's a double meaning in that particular text. That is, maybe one, he's talking about those in the church era who are going to experience a spiritual resurrection or those universally, including me and you, who will void being caught up in the uh, the Lord coming back while we were, while we are still alive, we will experience a bodily resurrection. And whichever one it's talking about, or it truly being a double meaning, is of no consequence. It still speaks of the fact that the dead shall hear his voice. And so everyone that we care about and cared about, who's no longer living, they are going to appear before judgment. So seven billion people plus those of you that are interested in doing the mathematical calculation as to how many people have lived since the beginning of time, however many billions upon billions upon billions of people, all of them dead, living, hundreds of years ago to people that will live in the next century, if the Lord wills, they will all appear before God on the day of judgment because the dead shall hear his voice. Verse 26, the Bible says the Son has been granted life in himself. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's no way that we could do a sermon on the judgment without at least talking briefly about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to read very many verses. But if you would, go to verse 42 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, so also the resurrection, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. He says, so also the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And then notice verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And of course, it seems as if Paul is pointing us as so much of the Bible. In fact, all the Bible is pointing us unto the Savior, Jesus himself. When we think about John chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, I want us to also appreciate that Jesus has all authority to execute judgment. He says, because he is the son of man. It reminded me of a passage in the book of Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. When I think of judgment, I don't typically think of the book of Philippians. But I thought, well, this is interesting the way that it is structured. Because there is a lot in Philippians about judgment, about preparing for the judgment. And he says, therefore God also has highly exalted his son... And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Again, the living and the dead. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I won't be concerned about it on the day of judgment. 
But on this side of judgment, I must say I'm fascinated with the notion of an atheist confessing Jesus as the Christ and that God is real. Because that's going to happen. People who deny God, the people that say, I am no longer interested in serving him, they will confess Jesus as the Christ. However many billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of people that have ever lived and will ever live, all will say the same thing. Yes, you are God. God is real. And you, Mr. Judge, are the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One. Because he has authority to execute judgment as outlined here in John chapter 5. All who are in the graves will hear his voice. Another phrase that I wanted to speak of. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's a sermon in and of itself, but just briefly, let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, because apparently there were some questions in the first century about those who had died and about what their status was going to be going forward. He says, I don't want you to have sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And he will, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Verse 18 is one of my favorites. It says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are comforting words to those who are believers because it is a great day coming. These are not comforting words to those wherein it's a sad day coming. And then the last phrase that I wanted to point out is just that phrase in verse 29. Shall come forth. And he says, it'll be either to life or to condemnation. Again, it goes back to Matthew chapter 25, verses 34, 41, and 46, where there are definitive judgments and definitive punishments and definitive rewards outlined by our Savior. Well, that brings us to our third and our final glimpse of judgment. And this is one that we may not look at as much. And I'll be honest with you, I I hadn't looked at too much until the last few weeks in thinking about this particular study. But I want us to go to Romans chapter 2, and I want us to wrap up in Romans chapter 2. And you can say, well, the whole chapter, the whole book is about judgment, and that's true. But I wanted just to focus on six verses in Romans chapter 2, beginning in about verse 11. And if you want this week to go ahead and read the entire chapter, you certainly are welcome to do so. You don't need my permission. You just feel free to do so whenever it strikes you. But in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Now, that's a universal truth that's taught by James, that's taught by Paul, that's taught throughout the entire Bible. There's no partiality with God. And when it comes to judgment, there's no partiality. There's no bribing of the judge. There's no, uh, well, I want to appear before the judge to be more righteous than someone else. He knows all things. He already knows your level of righteousness as measured by your life. He says, for as many as have sinned 
without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these all not having the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And then verse 16, where we'll focus on for just a moment or two. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. I want to make three real quick observations about this text. And you say, well, you can make a whole lot more than that. And I agree. But let me just make three. Number one, no partiality in judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 10 outlines, among other places, that with God there is no partiality. And I like Deuteronomy 10 because, one, we've recently studied that particular text with our good brother Brian. But it also is a text that goes back to the the foundation of who God is, a a reintroduction of who God is. And it's very clear that you cannot bribe God. There's no partiality with him. Let me also suggest that we could really delve into verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. And it simply proves in a broader sense that sin is a universal problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And then through about the end of the chapter goes to talk about that as well. That's where it says in verse 10 of Romans chapter 3, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God, for they have all turned aside. Perhaps one of the most quoted verses in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that we have all sinned, for all have sinned, and come short of God's glory. And so it is proven in Romans 2, verses 12 and 15, as well as Romans 3, as well as the Bible, that sin is a universal problem. But I want to end with verse 16, where it says that all secrets are known to God. The text says, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel... You know, I started with a confession that I don't like verse 3 of that song. I mean, I like it, but I don't like it. You get what I'm saying. I don't like verse 16. But it's not for me to pick and choose which verses I like and don't like, right? You understand why I don't like verse 16? Because there are secrets in my life that you don't know about, that God knows about. And there are secrets in your life. There are things that you have done that nobody knows about. And God knows them. And if you take that and you compile that with Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, where it says that God will judge all the secrets. If you go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, where there Jesus speaks. And he says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, where Paul writes to the church there, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he writes in verse 5, he says, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes 
who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, each one's praise will come from God. You know what that tells me? All those verses combined, if we were to really delve into that, God knows everything. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. There's only one way to find out how it's going to work, and that's to be there. But God's going to judge my secrets, and he's going to judge your secrets. He's going to judge your thoughts. He's going to judge your actions. He's going to judge your words. He's going to judge every page you've looked at on the Internet. He's going to judge everything that you've engaged in. He's going to judge it all. And i got to admit, I don't, I don't quite like that because that frightens me. Because he knows all those things. Now, there are really, it seems to me, two kind of major theories or ways of looking at this passage. And different uh, scholars have debated as to which it will be. Either God knows all the secrets and he's going to lay it bare for the entire world to see. But yet forgive us of it. Or the fact that we've been forgiven, he says, I know the secrets, I'm judging those secrets, but you've been forgiven of it. I know which one I prefer. Because I don't want you to know all the secrets. And I can speak for every person here, you don't want me to know all the secrets at judgment either. I know that. Because we're human beings and we make mistakes. Some have suggested that by bearing it all to the world, at that point the world doesn't exist, but you get my point, but by bearing it to all of humanity and then saying, I'm going to forgive it, it's a greater instrument of his compassion and forgiveness, and that's the, the avenue he may go. I don't know what it's going to involve. I know he knows everything. I know he's going to judge everything. I know his grace is powerful and that it forgives me of those things by my, by my, by my obedience to God. And I appreciate that. So I was told recently of a story of a preacher friend of mine who anytime he would ever talk about Romans 2.16 or Ecclesiastes 12.13 through 14 or Matthew chapter 12.36 or 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 where it talks about the secrets being judged and being known that there would be a couple of people that would come to him after services and they'd be had this worried look on their face. Does that mean that he's going to tell all the secrets to everyone? And his answer was always the same, and it was an eloquent, I don't know. <laughs> because ultimately we don't know. But we know that the Lord knows all these things, and that we can be forgiven of all things. And you know what? That's all that matters, is that the Lord will forgive, because the Lord is righteous judge, and judgment is that serious which brings me to the final things that i want us to talk about together in our study together this morning and that is some final applications regarding judgment i just want to share with you four things and four or five passages very quickly number one judgment is a serious thing i started with this being a very serious subject and i end with it being serious we do not take it lightly this is more serious than any issue on the nightly news. This is more serious than what you see on the internet. This is more serious than anything that transpires. Judgment is serious. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. The Bible records for us this particular statement. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
Again, there's direct context that we are really filling in the gaps here. But if you turn over just a page in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 22, it says, I say to you, more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. He says, it should be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The point being here is that judgment was a serious subject that Jesus was addressing 2,000 years ago, and it is equally serious for us today. Number two, Jesus takes the judgment personally. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, he says, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus takes it personally. So when Jesus says, depart from me, I have to believe that that hurts him. Just as much as we pray today that our God is hurt when someone is unfaithful in this life, why would he not be upset about the idea of saying goodbye eternally to someone? Let me also suggest that judgment is an individual thing. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, where our good brother read for us a little earlier in our study together today, he says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But let me also suggest that judgment is a universal thing, as outlined in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. And we already talked about that, but let me conclude with that, where it says he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge and to be judge of the living and the dead. So judgment is individual. What I mean by that with point three is that you'll stand before God on the day of judgment and answer for your sins. And you won't be able to call up the preacher or the elders or your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife. Or your son, your daughter, your mom, you can't pick any of them. No, that's not the way it works. You stand before God on the day of judgment individually. He knows all the secrets. He will judge us at that time. But it's universal in the sense that all of us will appear. And that includes you. That includes me. When it comes to the final judgment, I simply conclude with this question, and that is, are you ready for the judgment day? This, some might say, is a sermon that didn't make me feel that well because it scared me, and that's okay. We need sermons that scare us, that remind us of the importance of doing what is right. And so there are no apologies being made from me as to preaching this kind of sermon. But I appreciate the fact that it is a frightening thing, that it is a sobering thing. And if we can help you to be prepared for the judgment, we would welcome that opportunity. Either by becoming a Christian, saying today, I'm ready. I'm ready to start. I'm ready to prepare for that final judgment. And being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Or if you've done that and you're not uh, living correctly, you've made some sort of an error that involves uh, the public that others know about. Or maybe you want prayers of brothers and sisters to help you with your challenges. We'd be happy to help you with that as well. If we can strengthen you or encourage you, help you spiritually in any way, let us know. Watch together we stand while we sing.